So in, in Major League Baseball, the very best teams, no matter how good you are, you only win about two out of every three games. And so I think of myself that way. If I'm winning a, a good bit more often than I'm losing or playing even, in the long term, I'm going to be really successful. And I aim for certainly more than two out of three days. I think for me, it's more like nine out of 10 or six out of seven or whatever. And that does two things. First of all, it doesn't make it all or nothing, as you said. Like if I'm having a bad day, well, I might as well go ahead and have the worst day because I know there are consequences on the days that follow. But secondly, it reminds me that it's a long season and that my life hopefully is a long life and how long I live it and how much pleasure I'm going to be able to get out of it, at least partially depends on what I do in this moment. And that to me really is a good check for me on indulging myself or overindulging myself in the moment. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Feeling Full podcast. I'm Mordechai, an entrepreneur and coach who struggled with being overweight for nearly two decades. But since 2012, I've lost 130 pounds and I've kept it off. Join me and my guest today to discover how it's possible and even simple to lose weight with ease, without diets and without intense workouts. If you're ready to give up quick fixes and fad diets and build a fulfilling relationship with your body and food, then this show is for you. Today, our guest is Tommy Tomlinson. Tommy is the author of the memoir, The Elephant in the Room, which was published by Simon & Schuster. It's a book all about life as an overweight man in a growing America. He's written for publications including Esquire, ESPN Magazine, Sports Illustrated, Forbes, and many others. He has spent 23 years as a reporter and local columnist for the Charlotte Observer, where he was the finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in commentary. In our interview, Tommy shares what it was like being the biggest kid since he was four years old and what it was like to grow up in the South eating an all-American lifestyle. We discuss food addiction and what it's like to have that craving to go through the drive through and feeling like you're out of control, and how food addiction is very similar to other addictions. Tommy got an opportunity to interview the NFL quarterback, Jared Lorenzen, who was known for being an amazing quarterback, but also sadly struggled with his weight. After interviewing Jared, Tommy was inspired to share his own story and to change his lifestyle. Tommy started out at 460 pounds and lost 130 pounds so far. He shares how you can start feeling awesome today without having to reach your ideal weight goal. Thanks for joining and let's jump right in. Thank you so much for joining. It's an honor to have you with me today in this conversation. You know, reading your book was a really powerful experience. I'm trying to figure out like how to put it into words. And when I think about it, like I, what emotions I felt, there was like the first hour, I felt a lot of sadness, not only because of your experience and the hardship that you went through, because you were describing so many things that I have felt that I never allowed myself to feel. And I think, I mean, I, my skin was itching. I was definitely tearing up at some points. Like I was, I felt all the full range of emotions hearing your story because so much of what you were sharing was things that I had struggled with in my life and you were describing the problem better than I could ever describe it. So I just want to thank you for, for writing that book. Well, first, thank you. And, and second, um, it's really gratifying for me to hear that you went through those emotions because that was my intention. You know, I wanted to take people through that roller coaster that sometimes is really sad, sometimes it's really made me really angry. 
sometimes really made me feel joyful and hopeful and disappointed and all the all those things. And that was what I wanted anybody who read or listened to the book to feel, even if they didn't, and maybe especially if they had not experienced those things themselves. I think one thing I wanted to set out to do the book was there's so many people who just don't understand how somebody could get to be really overweight. Like they just can't get over that sort of mental and emotional hurdle. Like, why would you do that to yourself? And so I wanted to walk kind of people through the steps of what happened in my life and maybe get them to see what it was like through my eyes so that maybe at the end, they would understand a little better how it could happen and what it makes you feel like and how you feel people judging you and all those kinds of things and to maybe just come to a better understanding. Yeah, and I mean, I've heard, I want to say many, but definitely a handful of memoirs of people who have lost weight, who have gone through a transformation. And yeah, this is by far the best that I've heard. So you definitely accomplished the goal that you set out to. Well, thank you. You know, it took me a long time to basically talk myself into doing this book. I was really afraid to do it at the beginning. I talked about it four or five years before I actually started to write it. And I thought about it in some way or another, obviously most of my life. But it took a long time to sort of get up the gumption to write it. And when I decided to do it, I said, you know, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right. I'm not going to hold back. I'm not going to go halfway. I'm going to throw my best pitch and make people understand it the best I can. Because I've read books where I felt like people held back or didn't tell the whole truth about what some experience in their life was like. And I always felt like those books weren't very useful because they didn't help me understand. And I wanted to help people understand. And so to do that, I felt like I had to sort of tell the whole truth, basically. Yeah, that comes through. You definitely did not, you definitely did not hold back. So I think that I just thought of a huge brave act on your part. And let's go back to the beginning just to kind of, you know, give a little overall of, to kind of get a better understanding of where you came from for people who aren't familiar yet with, with your story. Take me back to the beginning. You know, if we were friends in elementary school and you said, hey, Mordecai, come over for dinner, what would that look like? Um, that would look delicious is what it would look like. Um, <laughs> so I, I grew up in Georgia. My mom and dad grew up on farms, working fields, and they cooked big meals because for them, they needed it for fuel because they worked with their hands and their backs their whole lives. And so when I came along, they were still doing that. My mom and dad met at a seafood packing plant where they worked and they worked really long, hard hours. And so when they got home, they needed to eat big meals. And so there would often be, you know, the centerpiece would be something fried, like fried chicken. We had fried catfish a lot because we were close to a river and we fished a lot, pork chops or something like that. There would always be some kind of homemade bread, like usually cornbread, sometimes biscuits or something like that. And then a host of Southern vegetables. And when I say Southern vegetables, so my wife is from Wisconsin. And when we started dating, I took her to visit my mom and my mom made this stewed squash that was just incredible. My wife said, you know, how do you make this taste so good? 
And my mom said, well, you start with a slab of ham and then you go from there. And so all the vegetables I ate growing up were seasoned with ham or bacon or turkey necks or something like that, you know, some sort of fatty thing to make them taste better. So all the, you know, so if you're sitting down at supper with me, we're having fried chicken, maybe fried okra or something like that, stewed squash with ham in it, cornbread. And then, you know, if we're having dessert, we didn't always have dessert, banana pudding or chocolate cake or something like that. And all that is washed down with sweet tea, tea that's so sweet that probably if you took it out of the cup, it could stand up on its own, you know? And so that was a fairly typical meal for me during my, you know, from the time I was old enough to, you know, eat at the table until, you know, through my high school years and 20s and beyond. When you were eating like this, and first of all, I love the fact that you called supper because, you know, growing up in Michigan, you know, our family also called it supper. I only changed the dinner once I moved to New York and and that became supper. (laughs) What's supper? Yeah. Is that a religious thing? So everyone's eating um, the way you're eating in your family. And at what point did you realize that you were were getting bigger than you wanted to be? I was, from the time I have memories, I was an overweight kid. You know, my first memories go back to like four or five years old. And I was always the biggest kid in my class. I was often the tallest kid in my class, at least until like high school. And so if you look at the, you know, those class pictures I used to shoot in elementary school, I'm like towering over everybody else, sort of vertically and horizontally. So I was always the biggest kid in my class. And at the beginning, I just didn't, you know, kids made fun of me for it. And, but I didn't really make a connection from, it was because of what I was eating at home because I didn't know what anybody else was eating at home. You know, I didn't realize other families weren't having these big Southern meals, or at least in the same way that I was. So it wasn't until, you know, middle school or high school that I started, you know, hanging out with other kids and going to their parents' houses, you know, doing sleepovers and that sort of thing and realizing that not everybody ate like we did. And so that was when it sort of started to dawn on me that maybe the diet I was having at home was causing me to be fat. You know, before then, I guess I didn't really think about the origins of it that much. Or if I did, I just thought, you know, it was my sort of genetic destiny in the same way that other kids had red hair or, you know, had freckles or whatever that I was overweight. And so it it took a while for it to sink in for me that there was something in my family and in my, in the way I was raised, I guess, that has something to do with what I weighed. And was there, was there a, a moment where you can go back, you can draw back to and be like, this is the moment I realized? I don't know if there was that. I do remember going to, to like hang out with other kids, sleepovers. We started maybe in middle school or something like that and seeing you know, that their family would have a nice medium portion or something baked in a salad and things like that. And I'm like, well, where's the real supper? <laughs> you know, and uh, just sort of thinking about, and then we would go on like field trips maybe, you know, as part of school or something. And we would have a lunch somewhere and I would watch what everybody else was having and realize that the brown bags 
that they brought from home were very different than the ones that I brought from home. And, and so I think it was sort of a dawning that my family ate differently than everybody else. But I got to tell you that I didn't see that as a detriment because I love the meals that my family made. They tasted great. The food that we ate was better than the food I ate anywhere else. And so it was way beyond there before I started to say to myself, you know, if I want to get healthier and I want to live a better life, I better take a much closer look at what these family meals are like. So that idea of getting healthier and have a better and have a better life, around what age are we here? I'm probably in, I'm guessing high school, early middle school. It was, I think for me, it was the age that it became clear to me that my weight was an issue for girls, you know, that I was not getting the dates that I would like to get or, or that some of the girls that I was interested in were not attracted to me at all. And, and that my size had at least something to do with that. Um, I did, you know, date during high school. I did okay. But certainly there were some girls there that were out of my league. And I, and I came to believe that. And so I was looking into getting into better shape for that reason. And also I felt like that I was starting to see some separation between me and other kids when it came to like doing athletic stuff. I played a lot of basketball and tennis and things like that in high school, softball and that sort of thing. And I was always, could always sort of hang with the other kids. I was never the best at anything, but I was always pretty good. But then I felt like in high school, especially, there was a big leap where there were a bunch of kids who were clearly way better than me. And part of it was stamina that I could not, for example, run up and down a basketball court for two or three hours like they could. And so I started to realize that my weight was holding me back in those areas as well. And so those were the first things that I noticed that I think were a big difference. When you started noticing that, was there like an immediate, like, I, I got to do something about this. Let me, let me try to lose weight. Or was it just a realization and you're like, all right, this is the way it is because of the genetics and whatever else you were telling yourself? Well, my mom had picked up on this. My mom and dad, I think, had picked up on this before it was obvious to me. And I think they had helped try some things with me or, or, or helped me through some things. I think when I was about 12, they took me to a diet doctor. And looking back, basically what he did is prescribe me amphetamines, which were great because then I could go run around a little bit more all day, but it didn't have the effect on my appetite that I think was intended. And so my mom and dad were very smart and very loving people, but did not have a great education, especially when it came to medical stuff. And so they didn't really know how to advocate for me. I think in that way. And so we all tried a lot of things. I mean, we tried a lot of sort of fad diets. I mean, I remember clearly like the first time around that carbohydrates were considered to be bad, like back in the 70s. My mom had this little pocket guide to carbohydrates that we would carry around everywhere. And if we'd eat out somewhere, we'd, you know, look up and check all these things. And then I distinctly remember my mom realizing that cornbread under the carbohydrate diet was bad for you. And that was pretty much the end of the carbohydrate diet for us because cornbread was such a staple in our house. 
we had it basically every day. And so I went through all these phases, and this continued for many, many years, of like picking up one diet or one program or another, trying it for a while, maybe having a little success, but no long-term success, getting frustrated, dropping it, going full off the wagon for a while, gaining a lot of weight, trying to pick it back up, and and that cycle sort of repeating itself. So, you know, pretty much any diet you can think of that existed during the 70s, 80s, 90s, or whatever, I probably tried it at one time or another. I can relate to trying all the all the diets to trying to really find the solution, thinking that like that, you know, when you go on that next diet, that that diet is going to be like the savior. Like it's the, this approach, it's the South Beach approach or, you know, the paleo approach. And if I just eat like this, I'm going to be fine. And you go all in. And then, like you said, you have some success, but it's, it's short lived. Well, I think, you know, pretty much all those diets work in the short term. Like if you try South Beach or paleo or whatever it is, pretty much all those diets at the beginning, you're going to lose weight because you're really paying attention to what you're eating in a way that you haven't before. And so you have some success at the beginning, but all those diets, virtually all of them, are really hard to sustain. And so the way I tell people is that if you have, you know, 10 pounds to lose, you could probably pick up one of those diets and do pretty well and have some success. But if you're like me and you had 100 pounds to lose or you know, as I got further and further in the whole 200 pounds to lose, those diets just aren't sustainable for people like me. And you have to find a different solution. Continuing to go on these diets, you're trying all the diets. So you're gaining and losing your weight. What's happening and where are you when you realize that these diets are not going to work? Well, I think I realized it before I did anything about it. There was a point at which I had felt like I had tried pretty much all the permutations that were out there and none of them had worked for me. And so there was a, a fairly long period, probably of, probably of years when I just kind of said, screw it. And I just lived my life and I ate kind of what I wanted. And at this point, can you, th- can you just tell me a little bit about that? So what does that mean? That smile on your face? <laughs> well, I just uh, it lived my I life. Just, what does that mean? Well, I just, kind of decided at some point that this was who I was and that if something came along that was better, I would try to pick it up and try it again. But there was, you know, probably in my early 30s, I guess I would peg it, I sort of gave up and ate what I wanted. I was living alone. I was eating all this fast food. All this stuff, it was just terrible for me. And it really took for me kind of falling in love, finally, after many years of thinking that would never happen, to sort of make me want to be a better person again. And so when I fell in love with the woman who would become my wife, that gave me sort of a new reason to get healthier. And she was there with me helping out. But then even that, as I outlined in the book, was a long, bumpy road before I actually did anything sustaining. She helped me kind of become a better person and regain some portion control and cut back on some of the worst things for me. But I still did a lot of those things. And it took years and years and years, 
even after that real realization to finally get on what I felt was the right track. That's incredible. That meeting your wife to actually like to not give up anymore. And just to kind of get an idea, like how, what size are you at that point? Um, I remember I, it, it was not the biggest that I was, cause that was a little later, but I was probably in the 400 pound range when we got married. We decided to get married in a, um, uh, if we ended up changing our minds about this, but at the beginning, we were going to get a small wedding and I was just going to have a suit to get married in. And I had to have a suit custom made because nothing, even at the big and tall stores they had would fit me. And so I had to get a, a custom made suit to be married in. And I forget this, the waist size was like maybe 58 or something at that point. And I did get bigger to some extent down the road, but I was already near to my biggest at that point. I was a 54 once, I think a suit as well, waist size. So it's really interesting that, you know, earlier on you said that in high school, you had the belief that you needed to, you know, lose weight so you can, you know, meet a woman. And here, you know, in your thirties, you met the love of your life at your heaviest. And I think that's just kind of a interesting thing to think about how sometimes we have these beliefs that aren't really grounded in, in reality. Yeah, no, it's very true. I think, um, you know, I, as I look back, far back as, you know, high school, there were girls that I dated and had relationships with and that sort of thing. And they all, to one extent or another, saw more in me than my size. I think I was doing what a lot of people do. I was projecting my own flaws and my own lack of self-esteem onto them, thinking that they saw me the same way that I saw me. And luckily, I've had many people in my life, you know, friends, family members, people I've been in relationships with, who have seen more of me than my size. And that's been crucial. It's really fascinating to think about because if you think about like this idea of, you know, the quote unquote fat lens, you know, I call it, it's like the idea of like the way somebody who's overweight or fat would see the world, they they see the world in one way, you know, it's like, you know, a lot of the things that you describe in your book, like, you know, before going to a restaurant, checking to see if they have chairs that you can fit in, or um, if the bar stools, if they actually pull out from the bar, like simple things that people who are not overweight don't think about, you know, and going on an airplane and all the things that you've experienced and saw the world is like a, it's a unique way to see the world. And it's not, it's not necessarily always the reality. And I think this is kind of um, interesting. I think it's kind of it's kind of proof, but I'm curious. Like, what else has been some surprises that have come through that are ways that were you were seeing through your quote unquote fat lens, but actually not a reality. Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, I think. Um, I mean, I think I always assumed that, like my friends when I got with my friends, I always assumed this was something that they were thinking about all the time, that they were looking at me differently, even though they were my friends, that I was like the fat friend or something like that. Or in any group I was in, I was like the person who was the outlier because of my weight. And I think in talking to them for my book, you know, I basically did a questionnaire where I sent a bunch of my friends sort of, I emailed them questions about, you know, what do you think about when you think about me and that sort of thing. And I heard from a lot of them that certainly they were concerned about my weight. 
but that it wasn't something that they dwelled on all the time. It wasn't something they thought about, you know, as the first thing they thought about me and that sort of thing, which was not my experience. Cause when I think about myself, that's the first thing I think about. And so they thought about things that were more positive and they thought about things that were more pleasant to be around. And so there's always so much more going on inside your head than other people know about. And you project that stuff onto those people sometimes. And like you said, it's often just not true. And so I was using all those things in my head to sort of form the opinions that I thought other people had about me. And they just weren't accurate. It's amazing when you unpeel that. And, and I love that you do that for your book to kind of get a, an idea of what people were talking about behind your back, um, some of the closest people to you. And I think that's um, it's a gift. It's a gift. I know you did it for your book, but it's, it's an interesting experiment. I wonder what that would look like if I did that. <laughs> I actually <laughs> thought about that when I was there. I'm like, you know, that's, that's a fun experiment, even though, you know, there's, there's no book that I'm planning to write at the moment. But um, it's definitely an interesting thought experiment. It's a little bit of a scary thing to put that out in the world because you, you don't know what you're going to hear back. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually curious, you know, like, where did this courage come from? Where did the courage come from to say, you know what, I'm going to let it. I know there was a very logical thing you touched on in the beginning of the convo about, you know, like you said that if I'm going to write a book, I'm going to give it all out. I'm not letting it, my readers get a half-assed book. But where did it come from inside of you to just be, you know what, I'm just going to let it rip and share everything because there are some really vulnerable things in there. I mean, and I think about my own journey and like, there's things that I'm very uncomfortable talking about and sharing and even letting my brain go back to some painful moments. I just don't necessarily want to do it. And I'm curious, like, where do you draw from and where is this courage actually coming from? Well, first of all, as I said before, it took me years to muster up whatever whatever you call it, the courage or whatever to do this, there were two things that happened along the way that sort of pushed me to go ahead and, and take action. The first was in 2014, I was a freelance journalist. Then I was writing, I was on a contract to write for ESPN magazine. And I ended up um, doing a story on a guy named Jared Lorenzen, who had been a quarterback at the University of Kentucky really good football player, played in the NFL for a little while. But what he was really known for was being the biggest quarterback anybody had ever seen. Played most of his career at over 300 pounds, which is 50 or 60 pounds heavier than even the biggest NFL quarterbacks. When he was left-handed, his fans called him the hefty lefty. And I picked up his story years after he left the NFL. He was playing for a minor league football team in Kentucky where he was from, still playing, you know, well, he's still a good ball player, still playing quarterback, but was over 400 pounds by that time. And I saw a little clip of him on TV one night and I thought, man, somebody ought to write about him. And then I thought, boy, I bet nobody else could understand his story the way I could. And so I, I got in touch with him the next day and said, look, Jared, I write for ESPN. I'm also a big guy. I think we probably weigh about the same. I would love to come talk to you and talk to you about your weight and all those sorts of things. And he agreed. And so I spent the next month or two doing a story on him. He was incredibly open and willing to talk about his life. 
and uh, forthcoming in ways that that really opened my eyes to the way that you could talk about those things. And as I wrote the story, I started to see the value in that openness. And I started to believe that it is a form of coming out in a way, I guess, that coming out as somebody who struggles with their weight and talks about those things openly and helps people understand what it's like, that there's real value to that, not just for people who share that problem, but for people who have other problems that they're trying to get over and other problems they're trying to get across and would benefit from hearing about one person's struggles. So as I wrote that story, I realized maybe there would be some value in telling my own story. But as I did that, I thought, I still don't know if I can actually tackle this and try to get better and try to get healthier. And then right around the time I agreed to do a book about this, and in fact, I just signed the contract for the book a few weeks before, my sister died. My sister Brenda was a good bit older than me. She was my half-sister, so she was 13 years older. She had struggled with her weight her whole life as well, and some complications from some leg issues that she had related to her weight caused her death far too early. And as I sat there at her funeral, you know, the family's up in the front rows, and I turned around at the, at the funeral home, and I looked at all these people that I knew and loved who were sitting there behind us. I thought, if I don't do something soon, those same people are going to be coming back for me. And so Jared's story was the push I needed to tell my story. And Brenda was the push I needed to actually take action and try to get help. That's incredible. Thanks for sharing that. I'm, I'm really sorry about your sister. I know you guys were close. No. Yeah, we are. She's, she was the best. She uh, was always, we would always have Thanksgiving and Christmas over at her place or near her place. And uh, she would light up every room. So still yeah. miss her. Yeah. And it comes through in your way, the way you talk about her and the way you share about her in your book too. So it's, um, she sounds like a really special woman. One of the things, a quote you actually state in your book is, I can't do so many things because I didn't do the main thing. Can you just elaborate on the meaning behind that and where that came from? Sure. One of the things that I think I regret the most about being overweight for so long is so many things that I missed out on. So I never, for example, I never learned to ride a bike. I had a couple of bikes when I was a kid, but my legs were always too big. I never could get comfortable on the pedals. I just never could get up and going on a bike. And so at some point, I quit trying. I never learned to swim. I could sort of keep afloat in the water. I'm not going to drown if I get dumped over the side of a boat or something. But I never really learned to swim freely because I didn't want to take my shirt off in front of other kids and get swimming lessons and, and that sort of thing. You know, when I was a kid, I, I didn't turn somersaults. I didn't climb trees. I didn't do so many of those things that kids consider to be sort of rites of passage, you know? And those are moments that, that for one reason or another, I'll never get back. Like, I won't ever get to be a kid again 
So even if I learn to ride a bike down the road, it won't be the same as if I was, you know, seven years old learning to ride a bike. And so because I did not get in shape, because I did not pay attention to my weight, because I gave up on myself in a lot of ways in my earlier life, I missed out on all those things. And those are things that I really, I, I really, really have regrets over and wish I could go back and tell that little kid, you know, you need to pay attention to this now and tell that to my, again, to my 18-year-old self and my 25-year-old self and my 32-year-old self to remind myself of all the things that I'm missing out on. You know, the thing about being overweight or overeating, which I think is the same for almost any addiction, is that there's a real pleasure to it right? Tend to talk down the pleasure. But if you bite into a double cheeseburger, that's one of my weaknesses. It tastes great. It's incredible. We should not pretend that it doesn't. But the pleasure you get out of it is short term. It lasts five or 10 minutes. And then you need it again. And with every one of those short term pleasures, you're denying yourself the long-term pleasures of all those other things I just talked about, those memories that last forever. So with every, you know, drink, if you're an alcoholic, with every cheeseburger, if you're addicted to food like I am, you're denying yourself all these larger pleasures in life. And that's the sort of thing that I had to get my mind around before I could really, you know, take this seriously. It's interesting that you talk about the short-term pleasure and the long-term pleasure, because it's something I've thought about a lot as well. And it feels like there's a, there's a trade-off, right? So it's, you know, you're not going to indulge in a, in a double cheeseburger or fill in the blank, you know, whatever it is, you know, for someone listening, but you're not going to indulge it. Not because ice cream isn't delicious. That's my thing. You know, it's not because ice cream isn't delicious. It's because if I eat the ice cream, I'm sacrificing so many other things that are much more valuable than the five, 10 minutes of the pleasure that ice cream would give me. It's a trade-off. And it's like anything, I guess, it's like anything else in life. You know, food's just like anything else, except that food, there's much more social acceptance with eating a double cheeseburger than it is, you know, doing drugs, you know, snorting Coke or, you know, drinking a bunch of booze, whatever, fill in the blank for other addictions. But food's the most acceptable form of addiction in society and because we have to eat every single day multiple times throughout the day. I'm curious, have you always looked at food when you know you describe your feelings around the way you would go into drive-throughs? Were you looking at food as food or were you looking at it as a way of a means of feeding an addiction? Well, it was all those things and more. You know, it was I think you put your finger on something that's a difficulty and trying to overcome this particular addiction. I don't think being addicted to food is worse than being addicted to alcohol or drugs or gambling or whatever it is. But I think the one thing that makes, well, there's two things that make a difference. One is that your addiction is obvious to everybody else. You know, if if you have a cocaine habit, but you might be sober in that moment, you can walk down the street and nobody knows. But if you're 400 pounds, And you walk down the street, everybody obviously sees that. The other thing is that you can go cold turkey on every other addiction and you can't with food. You have to keep eating. 
And so you have to be moderate about it in a way that you can not be moderate, or at least attempt to not be moderate in those other things. So to get back to your question, when I was going through those drive-through lanes, which I used to do multiple times a day, part of the feeling would be the excitement and anticipation. I know I'm about to get my fix. I'm about to feel five or 10 or 12 minutes of real pleasure. And on crappy days, that's something useful and important, right? But I'm also going to feel, I know I'm going to feel this. I'm going to feel shame for what I've done. And I'm going to feel regret. And I'm going to be angry at myself for all those things. So it's going to be a real pleasure followed by real pain. And then followed by this sort of, I don't know, almost semi-criminal thinking process of how do I hide this from the people I care about? You know, a big part of my day used to be when I was eating fast food all the time, you know, I would go to Wendy's or something, get a double cheeseburger combo, but I didn't want to carry that bag back home when I was done. So I would have to find somewhere to throw it away before I got home. So my wife wouldn't know. And it was like disposing of, you know, the stuff from the scene of a crime or something, which in some you know, sort of moral way it probably was. And so there's all those like terrible things that indulging that pleasure makes you do and all those things that it makes you feel. And I am, you know, really glad to be shed of those things and not feel those shameful things anymore and sacrificing that occasional pleasure of that double cheeseburger is, is incredibly worth it. I totally feel you on that. All the things that I haven't actually thought about that, all the things that come along with the quote unquote sin of eating that food. It's like all the mental preparation, the feelings of shame that go into it, and then the hiding it from society or whoever you're not supposed to get caught by eating it. One, because you know you shouldn't be doing it maybe for yourself. And also you told somebody else that you wouldn't do it. And that's one of the things that I think, you know, what drove me crazy the most is the fact that I always felt like a liar to myself. Like, you know, the start, I'll start tomorrow idea for decades. I said that to myself and, you know, you start tomorrow and then, you know, a month or two goes by at best and you're off. And then everyone you told that you're doing this thing, you now feel like a liar. For me, it felt like a really shameful way to live. Yeah. For anybody with an addiction, Tomorrow is the golden day, right? I'll start tomorrow. I'm going to, you know, binge today because it's the last day. But when this day's over, I'm starting tomorrow. And then tomorrow gets there and some crappy happens at the beginning of your day. Or you just go on autopilot and you forget. And all of a sudden you're staring down this, you know, the same plate of pancakes or whatever it is again. And that's when you say to yourself, okay. I'm going to have this, but I'll start tomorrow. And so, the, you know, obviously tomorrow never gets there. You have to start in the moment. And not only that, you have to repeat that day after day. And I think that's the thing that is daunting to most people, daunting to me, is that to do it, you've got to do it for your whole life. You know, you've got to do it every day. And that doesn't mean there are never going to be days when you slip up or backslide or whatever is that you have to sort of recommit to it 
every day. And, you know, a lot of people who have addictions of whatever kind, part of their personality is that they sort of avoid those commitments. And to make that sort of thing and to redo it every day is sort of a radical change in not just the way they eat or whatever it is, but it's a change kind of in the way they live and the way they understand their sort of moral and ethical philosophy, like how to live. And so I think that's even a more fundamental change in some way than just changing what you eat. I completely agree with you. And I think like it's also, it helps to take off the frame of like uh, bad and good. Like I've, I had, you know, a piece of chocolate. So my day is gone, right? Because on a diet, that's the mindset. So when you take off uh, or when you change the bad from like how I'm going to feel after the next choice, as opposed to I just messed up my entire day or a week. So I can, now I can let myself off the rails. It kind of brings it back home where you're more focused on how you feel right now. And I think that's a great way to, if we're talking about the how, I think that's a helpful way to try to change. And it's helped me a lot in trying to change my ability to stay on track for longer than I, than I have been ever now. But um, yeah, I think that's a great little tool. I think of it as I'm a sports fan. And so I think of it as like a baseball season. So in, in Major League Baseball, the very best teams, no matter how good you are, you only win about two out of every three games. And so I think of myself that way. You know, if I'm having really good days, two out of three days, and, and if that third day is just okay, you know, if I have that piece of chocolate on my third day, as long as I'm not, you know, rolling off the rails or whatever, if I'm winning a, a good bit more often than I'm losing or playing even, in the long term, I'm going to be really successful. And I aim for certainly more than two out of three days. I think for me, it's more like nine out of 10 or six out of seven or whatever that it usually ends up being. And that does two things. First of all, it doesn't make it all or nothing, as you said. Like if I'm having a bad day, well, I might as well go ahead and have the worst day because I know there are consequences on the days that follow. But secondly, it reminds me that it's a long season and that my life hopefully is a long life. And how long I live it and how much pleasure I'm going to be able to get out of it, at least partially depends on what I do in this moment. And that, to me, really is a good check for me on indulging myself or overindulging myself in the moment, that I'm now able to sort of more rationally deal with what the consequences and benefits are in that moment. And so, yeah, so somebody, you know, bakes a cake and brings it to work. I'm going to have a little piece of that cake, but I'm not going to be like I used to be and go back and sneak four slices and then take some home in Tupperware or something because I'm much more moderate in my choices now. And I'm seeing the long view instead of just seeing that piece of cake in front of me. So where are you at right now? And, um, in terms of weight, in terms of what program are you following? You said you'll have a little piece of cake. So it's obviously like more of a moderation style program. If you can just touch on those points. In my book, I, I outlined what I call the, the three-step diet, which is not a, an official diet at all. It's just what not I yet. do. Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. But anyway, so it's, it's very simple. I just measure the amount of calories that I burn every day 
And I do that through a Fitbit. Um, there are many other ways to do it, including you can just write it down and keep track that way. There are lots of ways to, to measure that. And then I measure what I bring in every day. Also on a Fitbit where you can type in what you eat. It, it tells you how many calories that is. And I simply just try to keep the amount of calories I burn to be a bigger number than the amount of calories I consume. And as long as that first number is bigger than that second number, I'm pretty happy with the day. Now, I do have goals as part of that. I try to make that gap about a 1,000 calories, where I try to burn about a 1,000 more every day than I consume. As I get into in more detail in the book, the science is sort of confused and, and the science is a little hazy on what even constitutes a pound, like how to burn a pound of calories and what that constitutes and that sort of thing. But a very rough rule of thumb is about 3,500 calories is a pound. And so if I burn, let's say, you know, 3,500 more calories a week than I consume, I should lose about a pound. Now, in practice, it doesn't always work that way. But my goal is just to be on the good side of the line as many days as possible. And so, you know, the Fitbit, it tells you, like, if you have a good day, it shows up as green. If you have a mediocre day, it's yellow. If you have a bad day, it's red. And so I, my goal is to see as little red as possible on my screen. And what that's led to for me is I, I think I got down probably at my best, I started for starting from a weight of about 460 pounds. I got down to about, I got down about 130 pounds. I got down to about 330. I have come back up about 15 or 20 pounds now during the pandemic because I haven't exercised as well as I like. I haven't been able to get to the gym and stuff. And plus just the stress of COVID and a lot of other things. We've, my my mother-in-law is living with us and she's not stressful in and of herself. She's a, a joy to have around, but the stress of the logistics of making all that happen and just all the other things that everybody is dealing with right now, I've kind of given myself a break in some ways. And I think that's also a part of looking at the long-term is sort of realizing when to not be quite so hard on yourself. And I'm much more able now to do that and know that I can get back on a better path. You know, that's been, I think, the big change for me. Once I did this for a while and had some success, I was able to realize that if I had a bad day, which, you know, comes up every once in a while, you know, I get depressed about something or I go somewhere and I have one drink more than I should. And so I eat more than I should or whatever. I do the calculations at the end of the day and I've, I've, you know, I'm in the red. I know now that I can get back on the right path quickly. Whereas before being in that red zone meant to me that I would just say, kind of screw it again. And I would go off the wagon and stay there for months or longer. And now it's, it never lasts more than a day. And so that's the thing that I think has been the big long-term change in me is that I have not used the occasional bad day to be an excuse to have a bad life. And that's been the big thing. To finish my thought, I think even with the weight being, you know, 
maybe halfway to where I'd like it to be. I'm much healthier. My body's better. I'm stronger. I have more stamina. I can do things I couldn't do before. My wife and I went hiking up in uh, Bryce Canyon and Zion out in Utah for an anniversary trip. And that was something that I never could have done before I started all this. And so not only have I lost some weight and a pretty good amount and enough to make me feel like I can lose the rest of what I'd like to lose, but just day to day, just walking around the world, I feel way better. That's awesome. Congrats on, uh, on, on your achievement and all the weight loss and the way you feel. Uh, and I think that what you're saying is, you know, consistency is what you have now more than anything else. Um, you Thank have, you. it's been a slow, right. And I, and I intended this to be set out for it to be a slow process. I intended for it to be a long-term thing. And that's the way it's been. And I'm, I'm happy with that. Yeah, I guess that's why they say slow and steady wins the race. You know, they don't say exactly. I am, I am the tortoise. Exactly. Yeah. So I want to wrap up Tommy with two questions for you. And um, I love to ask these two questions. So I'm going to the rapid fire does not, does not, whatever comes to mind is the perfect answer. Okay. So if you thought about your legacy and were thinking about one piece of your work that you could engrave on the inside of people's brains, something everyone would walk away with, what would that be? I did a piece years ago, it originated as a speech called Everything You Need to Know About Writing in Five Minutes. And I just sort of outlined the basics of telling a story and how people have told stories from back from caveman days through the Bible up till now. I think people overcomplicate what it means to tell a story. And I think there should be more people writing, doing creative work, but they think it's more complicated than it is. And if I could engrave that in people's heads that anybody can be a storyteller and here's sort of the basics to doing it, um, that's what I'd leave. I love that. I love that anybody can be a storyteller. Is that article? I would love to see that article and link it in the show notes for anybody listening. It is. I'll, I'll send it to you. Sure. Okay, cool. Last question uh, for you is what is one area of your life where you are feeling full in right now? I guess I'm feeling most full in family life. You know, it's been, uh, this pandemic has been right at a year as we're speaking. And my circle has closed pretty greatly. I haven't seen some of my dearest friends and family members in, in a year or more. You know, I've kept in touch with them in one way or another, virtually or, you know, through phone calls or whatever, but obviously it's not the same. But the core group, my wife and my mom, who I mean, her mom, who lives with us now, we've gotten to know each other even more deeply in this time because we're around each other 24-7. And I think that closeness, that depth, even as we're eager to go out and see our other friends and family and just see strangers again, you know, to be in a crowd at a movie theater, a concert or whatever, even as we're eager to go do those things again, I think I'm always going to remember these kind of close moments. We had a couple of days a few weeks ago, we were having some work done on our house and our power was out for a couple of days and it was cold. And so we closed ourselves off into one room of the house. We had a space heater and a little sort of um, DIY heater we made out of a, a clay flower pot and some candles. 
And we spent most of our day for a couple of days, just the three of us and our cat in that room together. And, you know, years from now, I'm going to remember those couple of days and how fun it was sort of making the best of what we could in that stressful time. And I, I feel pretty full with how things have gone in my family during that time. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thanks for sharing. All right. Well, when we, what we're going to wrap this up, is there anything else that you want to share with anybody, um, anybody listening? Well, I think the one thing, and I hope I've sort of made this clear as we've talked, is that my book and, and the experiences of people who lose weight and, and get in better shape is not just for people who are struggling with their weight. You know, the best letter I've gotten, and I've gotten thousands of letters and emails and messages after this book came out, I got a handwritten letter from a guy in Austria. I don't know how he found my book. I didn't, didn't even know it was for sale in Austria. But I got a handwritten letter from this guy. And the thing that I loved about it the most was that he doesn't struggle with his weight. But that book, my book, helped him understand his depression better. Because so many of the things that he struggles with come from the same sources of things I struggle with. And so many of the same symptoms, for lack of a better word, are similar. You know, these things rhyme across different sorts of addictions and compulsions and, and that sort of thing. And so I guess what I'd say is, you know, I, I would love for people who struggle with their weight to read my book and to follow, you know, this podcast and, and whatever people are doing to talk about their weight. But I also think there may be some usefulness in it for you if you struggle with something else or if you're a friend or family member of somebody who's struggling with these things, then it might be helpful for you to listen to it from the inside and to understand it a little better that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that book can be applied to many, many domains of addiction. And just in general, if somebody has a close friend who's struggling with their weight, if you want to understand them better, this is a, a great, a great way to great way to do that. The title of the book is The Elephant in the Room, One Fat Man's Quest to Get Smaller in a Growing America. Tommy, can that be purchased anywhere online that books are sold? Anywhere. It's uh, available. Uh, hardback, paper book, ebook, audio book, however you want it, it's out there. All right. And you can also follow Tommy on his podcast, Southbound. Well, I'll, I'll link all this in the show notes as well. And um, yeah, I just want to wrap up. Tommy, thank you so much for joining the show. I really enjoyed this conversation. And um, yeah, just thank you. It was my pleasure. Thanks for doing what you do. And thanks for having me on. That's it for us today, friends. Thanks for listening. Do you know someone who's struggling right now? If they could use some support, please share this episode with them. If you want to keep in touch, subscribe wherever you get your podcast or sign up to my weekly emails at feelingfull.com where I unpack what I'm learning about weight loss and share ways we can all live healthier and more fulfilling lives. Take care, be well, and feel full.